Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for Political Rewind, a midweek show uh, today with a great panel uh, that's come together to talk about uh, the stories that are in the news in politics. Uh, Greg Bluestein, who is political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us in the studio, which is terrific. You've been, the last couple of times we've talked to you, two weeks ago we talked to you uh, from Iowa, the day after the Iowa caucuses. Last week you were in New Hampshire for the primary there. You've been traveling. Yeah, this week Tia is in Nevada. Yeah. So I will be in South Carolina next week. Um, And, you know, that clearly, once we get past Nevada Saturday, going to be a huge story for all of us uh, to follow here. So you like being on the road? I do. Um, and it's kind of nice to get a break from the kids. <laughs> but it'll be fun in South Carolina because that's the first vote where the electorate really mir- help, more closely mirrors the Georgia Democratic electorate. Yeah, exactly. A little later in the show today, we'll talk a bit about what the dynamics are of the Nevada caucuses coming up. And, of course, we've got a huge debate there tonight. We'll get to that a little later in the show. Um, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver joins us again today. Uh, You're in the midst of a legislative session that's providing plenty of drama. Good Um, morning. Yeah, good to see you. Mary Margaret, of course, represents Decatur. Um, I want to talk to you about the budget, among other things. Um, Kerwin Swint, Dr. Kerwin Swint, Director of the School of Government and International Affairs at Kennesaw State University, also a political science professor professor there. And you write a column for Georgia Trend, right? Georgia Trend. I write the ad issue column every month. Uh, I try to uh, get a look at what's going on in Georgia politics and government and uh, tell them what I think. You can uh, see that column again, Georgia Trend <coughs> magazine. And Mark Roundtree, who is the president and CEO, I think those are the right titles, of Landmark Communications. Is that right? President and CEO? Yes. You just... The boss. Whatever. 30 years boss. this January, self-employment. Congra- I guess that counts for anything. 30 title. years. Congratulations. Yeah. This coming January. Landmark communications, among other things, you do consulting, political consulting, primarily for Republicans. And I, I know you said before the show went on, you have a, you're handling a bunch of legislative races, among other things, this year. But And we always like hearing your perspective as, as a Republican consultant. But as we always say when you're on, you're also one of the most respected, very neutral pollsters in the state of Georgia. And you poll for WSB-TV, and uh, we have a poll from you that we talked about on the show last week, but I'm glad you're here. We'll talk about it more today. So thanks for being with us, Mark. Of course. Thank you. All right. Let's start if we can. And Greg, I'll uh, let you set the table for this, and then we'll talk to uh, legislator Mary Margaret Oliver and get everybody else in the conversation. So... uh, We know that the governor and the House particularly have been feuding over the cuts that Governor Kemp uh, ordered. Not when we got cuts coming up for the next year's fiscal budget starting this summer. But we're not talking about the budget in which we're all living right now as Georgians, a budget passed by the legislature signed by Kemp at the end of last session. They always come back do a supplemental budget with changes based on revenues, how they're going, other needs that may come along. 
But this year it became more controversial because Kemp demanded that the changes, 4% cuts, be made immediately. He had very specific targets for what he wanted cut. And it's um, and the House particularly didn't like a lot what he's doing. So with that in mind, yesterday the Appropriations Committee passed out its version of the budget. It restored money for agriculture extension services, accountability courts, training for medical residents at the Medical College of Georgia, lab techs at the GBI, state park staffing and maintenance, and a number of other uh, changes in terms of behavioral health, mental health, mental health. So that's the budget that Mary Margaret and all of her uh, colleagues, 180 colleagues in the House, will vote on today. What's the significance of the difference between what the, the governor wants and what the House is going to do today? Well, it's a tug of war between the House and the governor, and the House tugged back um, yesterday, and we'll do again so later today. And we're really talking about about $30 million um, in, in cuts to um, to the governor's proposal or changes to the governor's main. So proposal. he wanted two hundred million, and you're saying that well, this- there's a smaller pot of thirty million or so where we're, we're there, there's a, a bigger debate over. Okay, and and in order to make some of those those restore some <clears throat> of that funding to the accountability courts, which has been a priority not just of Republicans but Democrats too. This is this is the program of of courts for veterans and 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 drugs and. And and other and, and alcohol and, and mental health courts that Governor Deal helped significantly boost um, over the eight years where he was in office, um, but that comes at a cost too. So the House's uh, the, the House Committee's budget restoration yesterday ended up costing about thirty million dollars, twelve million dollars for QBE funding, mm-hmm. twelve million or thirteen million for QBE funding, twelve million or so for corrections funding. Um, so there there. There is a drawback, you know. Right? This is a this is a battle over a limited sort of set of resources, um, but the House gave a put made a statement yesterday about what its priorities are. Well, I think Mary Margaret, you've been you've been in the legislature for you've had many years of experience in the legislature. You've certainly seen battles between the gov- a governor and a especially House over budgets. Is this one more dramatic in some ways? Is it more? Is it somehow? A little bit um, um, nastier, if that's a correct word. Well, what's the, what is the same and similar is that the House really believes we own the budget. We're the people that do the work in the weeds, uh, down on the ground. So there's a House pride and a House work ethic that we believe. Uh, and I've been on the House and the Senate side, so I can appreciate this divide. The budget is the most important thing we do. And there are people in the House side who are looking at our revenues on a day-to-day basis. The calculation that the governor has given the authority to make to set our revenue estimates is, is what's at play here, too. But also the House has a lot of pride in the progress that I believe we've made, particularly in mental health. Uh, we have the House, I'm on the Human Services Subcommittee, and we have been working very hard. We've restored Alzheimer's memory net money. We've restored money for the Bobby Dodds Institute. We've restored money for, in my district, the Marcus Center for Autism for Children. When... Behavioral health tries to tell us that we're cutting, uses as an example, the Bobby Dodd, uh, which is a center for developmentally disabled adults because it's an underutilized contract. And then the executive director tells us they have a waiting list of 470 people. Uh, There's a disconnect from what we feel as house folks looking at real services to real families 
uh, that we had to take some energy and put forward based on the work we're doing to see that these important services are met. The criminal lab, the crime lab. Uh, yeah, there's money we, put back for that, The House too. has been very strong on solving the issue of rape kits. Uh, Scott Holcomb's on your panel frequently, has been a leader. It's accountability court, criminal justice reform, uh, rape kit issues. Uh, those are things that have been totally bipartisan in the House. I so, don't know so much in the Senate. So let me, you know, it's one of the questions I haven't asked anybody, and Kerwin Swint, if you don't mind, let me see if you, I, this is going to be speculative, but given the scope of the programs that the governor's people decided they could cut, what, what is their thinking? I mean, I know the governor's gotten some praise from credit rating agencies that have said, look, he's right that they've got to be prepared in states around the country for the possibility of an economic downturn. So it isn't as if there isn't a rationale for cutting the budget right now. But the kind of cuts strike me. I'd love to get a sense of why Kemp chose areas that it feels like the public really would like to see funded. Yeah, well, it's been a really strange budget year already, going back to the fall when it was hard for a lot of legislators just to get information from the governor's budget director. And now we took, what, a week-long break? Two weeks. Two two weeks. For for everybody to try and get on the same page. One thing that surprised me uh, was the cuts to criminal justice reform programs like accountability courts uh, because Nathan Deal – it was a bipartisan uh, series of efforts. Uh, Nathan Deal hung his hat on that. He got national praise including from the Donald Trump White House uh, who – he was defeated there and treated somewhat like a celebrity. And, of course, Trump has his own criminal justice reform program. So I was surprised to see that, uh, especially the accountability courts. Now, I've talked to some legislators on the Republican side, and they say, well, you know, different governors have different priorities. Mm-hmm. They're going to look at things differently and have a different perspective. Um, and the House has now weighed in on some of those things and said, this is going to be something we're going to support with money. Um, so I don't know if it's just having a different perspective. I know he wants to fight human trafficking, uh, you know, uh, gang violence, those sorts of things. So maybe it is a different priority. But I think the criminal justice thing is just uh, is something that's, that's too much. So, Mark, uh, it's interesting that one of the ways I introduced you today was to point out that you are handling some Republican legislative races. Uh, and we know that there is a battle uh, – that, that Democrats want to want to fight to try to take control of the House. And, of course, they're already starting to mount uh, an effort to message about the governor's cuts and say this is why we need Democrats to get back. We need more Democrats in the in state government. These cuts are unacceptable. I think that was a statement rather than a question. Well, I'm asking you to respond to it. I mean, I'm not saying that I think that message is going to be resonant. I don't know if it will or not, but you're going to I think be on the other side of it with well, some of your candidates. I have a few points, actually, to make. Um, one is it's, it's, it is easy to focus currently on the cuts. It is. That's what's in the news. Um, taking into account, too, that there are some accomplishments that they're going to point to. I mean, there is a major teacher funding effort. Mm-hmm. The funds had to come from somewhere. And uh, he made very clear what his priorities were. The governor did that. Um, so focusing um, on that, that was – that's sort of their political effort. Um, I also uh, think that while there are what's, – what's most – there's two striking things about this particular legislative session. 
One is the uh, – I think it's been more public early on, the reported feud between Speaker Ralston and the governor mm-hmm. and uh, the political teams that have come out. Um, that um, – I don't think that plays so much in the in the general elections this fall in any way. Um, but that's also sort of been uh, in the news. And the other the, – the, the other point I'd like to make is um, just – it, past legislative sessions have been cultural battles. There have been cultural fights. Right now, we're talking about constituency fights. There are some issues you could say that that have broad-based support, but are people really at the moment voting on? Um, are they going to vote this fall on a, on a cut to a parks program? Hmm. I'm not saying that nobody will, but most people don't. Yeah. Um, what we don't see coming out of the session are sweeping pieces of legislation like the heartbeat bill like uh, campus carry, the things like that. They're keeping those off the table. Yeah, yeah. The governor hasn't introduced his package yet. We don't have a gang bill yet. We don't have... I mean, it's kind of a slow rollout of substance. Do you not have the the? Do you, you have legislation now on his efforts to crack down on uh, on sex the sex trade, don't you? Or is that not introduced yet? We have some some yeah. We have the initial rounds of foster okay. care and sex traffic legislation. Okay. The gang legislation we haven't seen. But okay, back to the budget. Ahead. We're in the we're in the supplemental budget stage. Right. We're the mid year budget. Right. And most of the cuts are are very. If you if you're really a nerd about the budget, which many of us are down there, uh, vacant positions are what fund a lot of the reserves. But looking at the revenues for January, it was up 4.7% for January. So it's an extra $100 million we've got in the bank right now to work with. The teacher raise cost a billion dollars. And that's a huge chunk of money. I remember when Zell Miller gave 6% raises to teachers every year, four years in a row. What did we get for that? Did we get educational bumps for that? Did we get measurable statistical improvements in our education system? So there's a real debate of where do you spend your money that's going to serve people and move the needle? So so let me ask you a very pointed question, if I may. Please do. Um, Can you afford to vote against a budget? Uh, Can you afford to say, I'm not going to support this budget because I don't think uh, pay raises uh, for teachers is something that ought to be on the table. We shouldn't be cutting other programs to give two hundred thousand dollars worth of, or to give pay raises to teachers. The extra two thousand dollars. The discussion teacher. among the Democrats is very much: Can we vote for a budget that cuts this and this and this? The Granting the teachers a pay raise is a politically popular thing, but when you granted pay raises to child welfare workers and law enforcement, you were strategically looking at issues of turnover, uh, dangerousness. There was a very specific analysis. A teacher pay raise is a feel-good, positive step to make for teachers, but is it strategic in terms of moving the services for Georgia? Uh, Teacher pay raises can be granted. He can he can fulfill his promise, but it doesn't have to be the first two years. Uh, I would like to see a little bit more thoughtful about maybe not all of the $2,000 this year, maybe delaying it in part. Our reserves are full. We have statutory reserves. Georgia has done a very good job through our big recession, and this may be small flattening. We're not using the word reception, recession at this time. It is striking, too. I mean, just talking about things that are happening, uh, striking that you have Republicans arguing for state-funded teacher pay raises 
which traditionally back in the 90s might have been more of a democratic issue. Yeah, well, Zell Miller, have, as Mary Margaret pointed out, yeah. And, and then you have um, Representative Hare and many Democrats saying, is that really the right way to go? And or I, can I, I you delay it? Not and, all at once is the question. It's, it's, and if it's you bear so is House Speaker Alston. I mean, that's what he's indicating, too. He, right. he might not be saying it in the same words, but he is saying, look, there's other priorities that we should be tackling first. And that's why there is this the start of this epic tug of war between those two camps over this issue. And what's really interesting, too, by the way, is that how Democrats have latched on to the cuts. You, you said the state party unveiled their initiative. And just last night, Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. launched her new fair fight. I mean, fair fight, which is traditionally focused on voting rights, is now expanding into the effort of criminal justice, pushing back against um, the criminal justice aspect of these cuts. Even though the House restored some of that funding, um, she's making it very clear that, hey, this is still up in the air and uh, she will message on that and and do paid TV ads and paid digital ads surrounding that issue. I think Governor Kemp looks at teacher pay raises as a campaign promise that he made, a commitment, and he knows how important it is to keep those campaign promises. And we know that it it polls well, certainly. You know, people support it. They understand it. And to answer Mary Margaret's question about the Zilla Miller pay raises, I mean, one thing it did was it helped teachers and university professors uh, keep pace with the rest of the country, you know, hiring, oh, retention, getting quality people. You know, that's uh, that's a big deal for parents. It's so. interesting. You have historical knowledge about that. And, and I think all of us in this room do, really. That's exactly right. The debate back then was that Georgia teachers were uh, lagging behind right. the, the national yeah. And he moved uh, pal- it to the middle. And, moved the it to the middle. And, and right. so Miller made that one of the most important aspects of his tenure as governor to make sure that teachers would get uh, equalized. And in fact, now I think I'm right to say that we outpace many states in terms of average teacher salaries. Top right? tier in the South. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. Um, last question about this. Greg, let me start with you. The, the budget is the single most, I think it's fair to say, on a given year, although Mark points out there are some years we got something like an abortion bill, gun law bills, whatever, gun bills. It's the single most important negotiation that a governor has with the legislature. And and so do we, is our experience that that battle in the long run is good for the state of Georgia? In other words, Mary Margaret pointed out, or no, Mark pointed out, you know, the media is making out, making a lot about the cuts and all, and we are. Uh, in the long run, is this kind of friction, this kind of pull, push, push and pull with the legislature in the long run a healthy part of our process? I think so, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it encourages debate, it encourages discussion, and it, it shines a light on on aspects of the state budget that don't get that, that before. But we also have to keep it in context because, and James Salzer points this out all the time, but you know this, these cuts pale in comparison to the the cuts that Sonny Perdue's administration had to enact and even Nathan Deal's administration early on. With the recession. With the recession, right? So we're talking at 4 and 6%, not double digits like lawmakers had to deal with a couple decades. Well, ago. the reason I ask that is I don't think it's, I don't, I want to be careful about creating the wrong impression for our listeners. And that is that somehow the, what's going on right now is something extraordinary, something out of the ordinary. This it, is really part of the normal process. I think it's part of the normal process. And also, I feel like we are listening to voters in, in a very specific way. If you are the parent of an adult disabled child and you have to go to work, the stories of family, family needs – come through the House budget process in a very concrete, people-oriented way. 
we hear those. Uh, the issues of crime victims not having their case is something we hear. It is part of the normal. The governor's ability to set the revenue estimate is a huge Explain evidence what of that, power. You have to explain I, what that means to people who may not understand. What does it mean to set a revenue The governor creates estimate? a budget under Georgia's law and gives it to the House. The governor's budget is based on the governor estimating what our tax revenues will be 18 months in the future. Right. We are – he – looks at the revenues during our current fiscal year, which ends June 2020. So we're focused this week on the supplemental budget. Are our revenues keeping up with what we estimated? Is it our meeting the estimate that he made? And then we have to gamble. We have to set, and what he has his economist from Athens who will say, it will give a range of the revenues we expect to be for fiscal year 21, which begins July 1st, 2020, and goes through June 21. He will, I predict, he will change the revenue estimate uh, and raise it and give us, House and Senate budget conferees, uh, another X hundred million dollars to play with. And the reason I wanted to mention the estimate uh, Mark, is there are some ways in which it's one of the biggest rules of the dice that a governor makes every year. If he overestimates revenues because he wants to pack his budget with programs he thinks will be politically popular, then he gets in trouble when they have to deal with the supplemental and cut back. If he underestimates it, programs that he believes the public may want aren't going to be. It's really one of the most interesting and important decisions a governor and his uh, people make every year. Well, by coincidence or by design, this is probably a good year to have additional funds being estimated. Um, th this obviously 2020, if you look back at the last 20 years, this is probably the battle royal year of who controls the legislature. I don't think most people thought when the Republicans took over 20 years ago that it would happen. So yeah. it was viewed differently. This is much more methodical. Um, I, and I would go back to the point of what we're not seeing are the huge cultural battles that have been fought in the legislature. Um, I, you know, th there is one other quick point. Yeah, I was going to say. They'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, you know, and you also had, for, for those who were kind of students of the 90s and watching um, Bill Clinton, who is arguably one of the best politicians of all time in the United States, the use of the term triangulation. And I don't want to overstate this. I mean, it, but you, you do have kind of a situation. This may be a little bit of triangulation by accident that I don't think they expected – the uh, Kemp administration expected the pushback that they've gotten on some of this stuff. And um, I, I think that uh, it's going to help him in 2022 to be able to go back and say, I've been independent of the legislature essentially. I don't think I'll phrase it that way, but um, I have had – you know, he's had his own agenda and has led on things apart from just the Republicans. And the Republicans get to go back to the county courthouses and say we fought them on accountability courts. And there's 159 county courthouses that are concerned – that are going to be concerned about – well, maybe not that number, but cuts in uh, court funding. You know, Kerwin, I think Roundtree is sort of holding his breath. I don't know who all he is representing in terms of legislators, but uh, it may be good or not good for the culture wars to start this session again <laughs> to his clients out there. But you're he, we haven't seen them yet, yeah. but we know some of them are coming. Religious liberty is certainly coming. It's coming in the form of the foster care right. uh, bill, for instance. Yeah. So it's not gone completely. Well, it's never gone completely. It's always there. It always bubbles up. You know, and, and you go into these sessions always thinking, well, they're not really going to pay all that much attention to social issues this year. But then inevitably it comes up. And I think it will again this session and probably even more so next year. Greg, what do you hear? What are whispers about what some of the bills that we might see pop up that, you know, will cause a 
storm down there. Yeah, look, I mean, Governor Kemp doing his State of the State outlined an agenda about teacher pay raise, foster care legislation, gang violence, sex trafficking that made it really hard for, for, for Republican and Democratic critics to vote against it. But that doesn't mean that uh, we won't see illegal immigration and we won't see guns. I expect both those issues to come up very soon. And we also, as you mentioned, have seen a religious liberty tinged sort of proposal involving um, a foster care and adoption of children. All right. Um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, we have a lot more to talk about here on Political Rewind. Hey, by the way, uh, Sam and Tom, uh, could you, uh, during the break, get get a rundown in here for me. I'd really like to get that so I can see what you want us to talk about next. We'll be right back. <laughs> We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Mary Margaret Oliver, Mark Roundtree, Kerwin Swint, and Greg Bluestein in the studio today. Um, Greg, let's take up one other issue just for a couple minutes because it plays into uh, the larger uh, races that are coming up in the fall. Uh, We're watching uh, uh, Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler. Uh, pit, um, they're pitted against one another. Uh, one of them hoping to, Kelly Loeffler hoping to hold on this, to the U.S. Senate seat she was appointed to. Doug Collins hoping to take it away from her. They, of course, will be part of the jungle election in November where candidates of both parties will be on the same ballot. Uh, we know that uh, uh, Speaker Ralston had hoped that there, he, he wanted to pass a bill that would establish a primary, a GOP primary in May so that Leffler and Collins could duke it out then. And presumably presumably to help Collins because he's better known. And we passed it out of committee yesterday. Passed it out of – but – so that's why I'm glad we're talking. Mm-hmm. I was under the impression that the bill passed out of committee would push this off to 2021. It does. So in other words, when, when – that's where I was heading. When Governor Kemp said – if you try to pass this, I'm going to veto it in a heartbeat. And Rawson had to back down, and now the bill doesn't have anything to do with our election this year. Am I saying that yeah, right or it, no? It, it delays that change to 2021. So from so after this election, if this passes, because there's still right. a big question about whether right. this passes. But if this passes, um, every every special election, because right now, of course, normal elections are primaries, but every special election from, from 21 and on would no longer be this jungle free-for-all. And while we say jungle, we, ju- we just mean multiple candidates from all parties can pack the same ballot, making it harder for any one candidate to emerge as the, as the you know, majority vote victor. But the reason, you know, as you mentioned, the moment Governor Kemp issued that veto threat made it really hard for Republican supporters um, to vote for this because you had all the Democrats, you know, who are uh, presumably aligned behind it and who were willing to, to join with the speaker. But once the speaker's vote counters re- f- figured out pretty quickly that it didn't have a majority of Republican votes, they backed off. So it did it have a veto-proof vote? There was a lot of nose counting. Uh, that dis- This bill passed out yesterday late afternoon, and it had not been shown to anybody before it was walked into the room uh, to delay it. There's a conversation going on about special elections for local uh, state house, but my concern is this is a vehicle for something. And I asked the Secretary of State okay. directly in the committee meeting, uh, "Where's your legislative agenda for 2020?" He says, "I have a bill coming." I said, "Is this your legislative agenda, and what vehicle is coming on this?" 
I'd what like to ask what are your suspicions? Yeah, what are your I've, concerns? I've got all kinds of paranoia around here. But <laughs> this bill, the, why would they? Why would they really want this bill for 2021? There's not a good reason other than they have a plan that they're not going to share with Mary Margaret. All right, we're going to watch to I see. I mean, one of the things they want is also to 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 create require qualifying. At least I'm talking about the governor's um, office wants to. To create qualifying for this special election in March rather than in August or September um, to make it harder for some sudden opponent. I don't of, think they changed that yet. Yeah, I don't think they did. Either. Not yet. So what? What's yeah. what's really going on well, here? Well, we um, don't know. We, we don't, don't know. know. <laughs> but we'll wait. You, you'll come back when you know what it is, Kerwin. I yeah. have a counterintuitive notion about this not having a primary, and and my reasoning. Uh, probably proves why I'm the host of a show about <laughs> politics, not really a strategic player in the game. It, the battle between Collins and Leffler is tearing the Republican Party apart right now. And it strikes me that a primary would pick a winner between the two and allow Republicans to unite to fight in November special election. It strikes me there is some advantage. I get it that Kemp wants Leffler, so I understand why he'd veto the bill. But I could make an argument the primary would, in fact, help Republicans in November. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a gamble. It's unknown. I mean, and, and like you said, the thinking had been that a primary this year would benefit Collins. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's been really interesting to watch the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Republican groups, officials close ranks behind Kelly Loeffler. Yeah. It's happening at the federal level. It's also happening here in Georgia. And, you know, the thinking was, well, Collins would beat her in a, in a primary. Uh, but now we're seeing, well, that may not necessarily be the case. You know, what it would do is it would simplify things for both parties. Yeah. It would enable them to get behind somebody on the Republican side, on the Democratic side. So I think there's a good civic benefit in, in doing it. Uh, it just was impossible to get it done this year. And there was no way they were going to override a veto, I think. You know, Mark, I think that Kerwin makes a really good point. Um, I wonder if Doug Collins, we're going to, Doug Collins is coming in here to do an interview with us tomorrow and we'll air it uh, over the next couple of uh, programs on probably Friday and then next week air the entire thing. But um, I wonder if he might be a little shell-shocked by just how many uh, parties are coming together to support Leffler. Uh, he does see him, I mean, he has been a darling of conservatives in Washington, in Georgia. And, and I just wonder if... Um, the Leffler people have done a better job of consolidating some power. Mary Margaret already is shaking her head no. What do you think, uh, Mark? Well, I think any. I think a reasonable person is going to say, if you're an analyst of this, that in a head-to-head election, Collins almost certainly would win a primary. Right. right. Um, the last poll I saw, he was 40 points ahead of her right. among Republicans. So right. He was uh, big. Um, and it's such a short time period. We're you know fewer than 100 days away from the actual primary at this point. So if it was a primary, Collins would win. Mm-hmm. Um I, I always get a kick out of looking at the 90s, and it's probably because that's really where I was engaging in, in campaigns. And the Democrats continued to tinker with the election process in the 90s and in the late 80s, and it resulted in the Republicans actually taking a majority. That's how White Fowler got defeated by Coverdell. Um, they, they created a, a – changed the rules for runoffs. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, I, from, a part, from a strategic point of view, I think this is a mistake for Republicans um, to, to – eliminate the jungle primary from a crass campaign point of view because Republicans win runoffs. Yeah. And what you're basically going to do here is 
you, you're almost guaranteeing a run. Now, in this particular case, in this particular year, it may not be the case, but over the course of time, over the next 10 years, Republicans are going to look back and they're going to say, wow, I wish we had more runoffs yeah. because demographically the state is moving to become democratic. The Republicans can win probably in 2022 and in 2020 in a very close election. They can win, but you used to say the Republicans almost certainly would win and there are changes in the state. Last point, just real brief. Um, I think a lot of Republicans look at the state of Georgia and they say, Republicans run everything. We will have every statewide office. That is so... It is so 10 years ago now. You have Metro Atlanta. If you look at the T-Sploss counties of Metro Atlanta, Democrats are going – by the end of this election this year are probably going to run eight of the ten. Yeah, well, we the saw the new level. data that proves that on voter registration. Younger voters, younger voters, yeah. Metro voters. Yeah, but you're nodding with everything Mark is saying about how Republicans Democratic – Republicans are going to want these runoffs back and they're not going to get them. Yeah. Runoffs tend to be in today's – analysis won by Republicans. Yeah. I, I agree with that is what I was agreeing so with. So let, let's put that in practical terms. Mm -hmm. What you're suggesting, both of you, is that when we see the November special election, the jungle election, you'll have uh, Leffler, probably Collins. Trump says he's going to find a solution. That's We'll see. Um, Warnock. Raphael Warnock, Ed Tarver, Democrats, uh, Matt Lieberman, all on the ballot. And you're suggesting and others too. Oh, sure, five others. Or six other candidates. But we're going to emerge with two. And it's unknowable who they'll be. And it's unknowable. It, exactly. But if I, if it were a Warnock versus other Democrat in a Democratic primary, Warnock wins. If it's Collins versus Leffler, Collins wins. But in and the then jungle you, you election, you have a clear discussion between Collins and Warnock. Right. If we had a primary system, I think it is totally unknowable today. Okay. And remember, getting 25 or 26 percent of the vote. For a Republican could get you in that runoff. Exactly. So we're not talking about getting. And you won't have two Republicans in the runoff. There's almost the numbers aren't there to have right. Collins no. versus yeah. Leffler. And I know that sounds strange, but that's sort of a presumption people make. You're going to have Warnock probably coming in in the upper forties. versus Collins could be a majority yeah. actually in this particular right. election year, but could, is going to be in at least in the mid forties. And um, you could easily have uh, a Collins or Leffler coming in at about 25 or 26 percent. Right. I, I, I want to move on to a couple other uh, uh, state issues because uh, I want to save the last section of the show to talk some national politics. We got Mark Rountree here with his his poll on presidential preference, prim Democratic presidential preference primary. Uh, Mary Margaret, coal ash is an issue that you are very concerned. Where is coal ash going to be stored? There was a story yesterday that you, I'm sure, were familiar with before you saw it in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, the town of Juliet, which is near Plant Shearer, which is closing down. Uh, they are very worried there about how Georgia Power is going to dispose of the mountains of coal ash that have been produced at that plant. And it all relates to the measure you're very uh, adamantly working to get passed. House Bill 756 requires that coal ash ponds be lined. Plant Shearer is the largest coal fire plant in, the Amer in North America, in Western Hemisphere. It has a 553-acre coal ash pond that sits in the aquifer. It is unlined. It is not one of the ponds that's going to be closed. It is an active coal ash pond. There are five unlined coal ash ponds that sit in the aquifer and uh, that are designed to be closed without it being lined, without it being in fact, cured. If you compare Georgia to the Duke Power Company settlement in terms of what, and I'm not saying Duke Power Company is the, the image of environmentalism in, in America, but the way they have managed the closing of their coal ash ponds, 
all of which have to be lined. The way they do the well testing, far more extensive than Georgia. But most importantly, moving away from my new nerdiness on coal ash, they're citizens of Juliet, Georgia, whose, whose wells are contaminated. And there was a meeting, and those are citizens, 300 of whom showed up again for a meeting with their legislators, and their legislators, uh, local legislators, are not supporting lined coal ash ponds. Georgia Power insists that they are meeting the requirements as they are now laid out in the state of Georgia. That is technically true if you believe today's law, which will be challenged. And the, the comparison of the federal regulations and the state regulations and the Georgia power before the PSC to close, cap and close, which means they're going to leave unlined coal ash ponds in the aquifer, no, in the aquifer when well testing shows contamination, I think is not a safe uh, a safe corporate stance. This is highly debatable. But the citizens of Juliet are recognizing that their local representatives, all of whom are Republicans, uh, are not attending to this. The local county commissioner called a meeting of Georgia Power and EPD and Juliet citizens and the Altamaha Riverkeeper to say, what can we do? Do you so have local the, citizen issues? Do you have the can you pass this? Bill, can you get enough Republicans on board with you to pass this? Today, um, unlike the 90s. Today, environmental issues tend to be partisan, and the Republic, the Georgia Power's power in this state is something that we could discuss for a long time. I have a, I have a lot of, inf I have a lot of opinions about the total domination of Georgia Power. Mary Margaret, over you have a lot of opinions about <laughs> everything, which is why we like having you on this show. Well, that, that's being kind. But Georgia Power's power over the Republican establishment is awe-inspiring. Kerwin, that was, she anticipated what I was going to say to yeah. you. When you go up against Georgia Power in the state legislature, yeah. you're going up against a mighty foe. Bring friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I know there's been a lot of lobbying on this issue for, for a number of years now. It's not the first year it's come up. But, you know, I, this may be an example where citizens find their local legislators aren't uh, on their side, but on, on the side of, you know, the lobbying uh, giant in this case. You know, Greg, uh, it, it's it, one of the things that makes this fascinating in the larger context is we're also living in a time when uh, the Trump administration is rolling back every environmental exactly. protection law or executive order that it can uh, do. And so it's interesting to see a community like Juliet which is coming straight up against what it means when they feel they're not being protected the way they think they need to be. That's what I was going to mention. Is so, is so is, it seems very different about this is the grassroots upswell. Um, I mean, hundreds of people. This hundreds. Is a town of a, in Juliet. In Juliet. And, and it's, it's one of those issues that if this were outside metro Atlanta, it would be front page of the AJC every day. And it's, it's harder because it's a smaller community in middle Georgia. It's not getting the attention that it deserves. But boy, does, should it get it. I mean, this, this is such an important issue uh, on the scale of the same thing as ethylene oxide and stereogenics. Mark, exactly. I, I, well, I apologize, Greg. Mark, um, environmental issues. I mean, I don't, know, I, I don't know how often that comes into play in the polling you do and how recently you might have looked at environment but if it's not in your own polling, what do you see as you look at pollsters you respect in terms of how voters out there feel about the environment? Well, there's two two types of people that vote on the issue of environment. There's not a whole lot of anti-vote. I mean, call it what you will. You have people that are very hardcore on the environmental vote and they're generally going to vote Democratic. But the real objective in a campaign when candidates are talking about environmental issues 
a lot of times have nothing are, are not the hardcore environmentalist voters. They're going to be suburban housewives, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, or suburban voters or young voters who are actually swing voters. And it basically inoculates um, candidates, particularly Republican candidates, to be able to point out, I have, quote unquote, I have a good record on coastal issues because you have a lot of Republicans along the coast. Right. A, lot of Repub a lot of coastal voters are potential swing voters. They are not native Georgians. They have moved here from other states. They have high income. They've retired here. They are Republican. But if you mess with their beach line or you don't fix beach erosion, yeah. they will put Jeff, you out. Je Jeff Jones is a signature on 756. He's Tell our, everybody about – He's a Republican on the coast right. that has a environmental – environmental issues are swing voter issues. Yeah. And the suburban housewife wants clean water for their children. All right. I got to get to a break. Uh, so let's do that now. We're going to watch this uh, measure with great interest in the weeks ahead. Uh, but let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's talk a little about presidential politics, especially with that Democratic debate coming up in Las Vegas tonight. You're listening to Political Rewind. We're, we're back on uh, Political Rio, and the conversation continues, even when you're listening to our underwriters. Um, and so I want to bring everybody back together so we can share everything we're talking about with you. Let's talk presidential politics. Mark Rountree, last week you were good enough to send us all of the crosstabs for the poll that you did for Channel 2 News on the Democratic presidential primary here. Uh, very quickly, the top line on it is Joe Biden sits important. You conducted this poll following the New Hampshire primary. Presumably, Correct. people you talked to had some opportunity to absorb the results of New Hampshire. Some we opportunity. methodically chose to do it the day after New Hampshire. Perfect. Yes. Biden at 32 percent. Bloomberg in second at 14 percent uh, with Bernie – well, uh, Bernie Sanders like 2.2 percent ahead tie. of – Tie. Interesting that that's the case. Buttigieg – Barely registers at 5%. Elizabeth Warren is at 4%. Klobuchar is down there. So what do you learn from – what do you say about just the top lines on this? Well, a, a couple things actually. Um, you know, f actually for one, it's always fun when you um, are sort of the first one out of the gate making a political point and the whole – it feels like the whole world is jumping on you. We were getting all kinds of criticism saying, um, you know, the, we were making the point in the, that what we found in the poll was black voters were staying with Biden. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time you had a lot of particularly the hard left, the Sanders people just absolutely shooting arrows at us. It's fun to read blogs. 41 percent, 40.5 right. percent black vote for uh, Biden in your That's poll. right. And now you have suddenly got all these far five, six, seven other polls showing the same thing all over the country that black voters are staying, including one in, that is being reported today in The Washington Post. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, it, it is fun. But what we found was the in Georgia, this is Georgia, Georgia only among likely Democratic primary voters, of which there will be about a million voters voting in their primary. Um, Biden is holding among African-American voters, but has tanked and collapsed among white voters. Um, today, Biden is at 21 percent among white voters. Sanders, 17. Bloomberg was at 19. And so you basically – I'm sorry about that. I just gave you an isolated number. I want to give you a different – we isolated Metro Atlanta versus outside of Atlanta, and you were the only one that got that crosstab. Actually, we we didn't we hadn't run it when we released it. Um, overall, Biden is still holding in Georgia, and if the election were held today, would win Georgia still because of the African American vote. But among white voters, only has twenty one percent. His vote 
among white voters is is almost entirely now. Um, I think it's fair to say he's he's in ex- extreme trouble as far as white voters. But that's not so bad in Georgia because historically, 62 percent of voters in a Democratic primary are African-American. What, what do you – I was just going to ask you what you weigh the – when you do your numbers and then weigh them, what, it, what percentage uh, do you give to black voters? This is what makes our polls different than everybody else's. Yeah. We have we, – we do a lot of tracking of who's going to actually vote, not just historical, but we look at trends of where things are going to happen demographically. And that's one reason why our, our surveys a lot of times are more accurate than the national pollsters about Georgia. Um, so uh, Georgia itself um, has uh, it basically going to hold with black voters. Um, and uh, Biden's only strength left – out. I mean if you could say there is one – is actually outside of metro Atlanta. Outside of metro Atlanta, I want to give you just a comparison. Sure. Outside of metro Atlanta, Biden's at 44 percent. But when you take – when you isolate Metro Atlanta itself, he's, he's only at 21 percent. Yes. Um, wow. So his vote is gone. And if the, a couple other um, – I don't want to – I want to get other people to jump in. I don't mean to give over-saturated we, information. We've got time. But 26 um, percent of voters are undecided. Who are those voters? That's always one of the most important questions of a survey. Who are those voters? There's almost no difference in the genders, male to female. There's mm-hmm. almost no difference. Those voters who are undecided are heavily young. 37 percent of people aged 18 to 39 are undecided. All right. So given all that, I would love to get everybody to wait. Kerwin, when yeah. you hear that, you're a student of data as political science professor. What, give us your thoughts as you listen to Mark talk about his poll. Well, I mean, uh, Biden is still strong in several southern states. I've noticed I think Alabama, Florida, uh, he's still polling well as of last week. You know, the real question about Biden uh, as far as the Georgia primary is will he even be on the ballot or will he be a candidate by then? I mean, look at everywhere else. I mean, he seems to be uh, slipping down into the basement. Uh, Nevada has flipped. Sanders is ahead there now. South Carolina has tightened up. And it may very well be the the white vote in in South Carolina, but it's much closer there now. That was supposed to be his firewall. If Biden does not win South Carolina, he is finished. Um, If even if he wins narrowly, say by two or three points, I think you have a really different race. Greg, Um, oh, I'm sorry, Greg. Oh, Mark's poll confirmed kind of what I thought, Um, and and I wasn't surprised that Bernie's numbers weren't that great here because he lost the state by about 50 points four years ago. Um, Bloomberg's numbers were a surprise that they've risen so sharply. But really, what what that poll and, and also the national polls have shown is just how fluid this this race still is, and how there are so many undecided voters, how there are late breakers, and how there are. I mean, Bernie Sanders is leading or, or number two in most national polls now, too. In Virginia, it's up in the air. And so a lot of voters will be waiting for South Carolina to help clear out the field and, of course, Super Tuesday. And so, um, as the professor mentioned, by the time we vote March 24th, there could be down to two or three candidates. Um, Mary Margaret, uh, uh, you're welcome to respond to any aspect of this you want, but let me throw one out at you. Mark, Mark just pointed out that uh, of the undecided voters, 37 percent are those 18 to 39. Now, if we look at what we believe is a trend out there, 18 to 39-year-olds tend to end up in Bernie Sanders' camp, which could be a big advantage for him if they decide to vote at all. I'm asking myself about these uh undecided voters, if are they like me, just trying to figure out who's going to beat Trump? I mean, the dynamic of this year is being everything to me is very unknow, unknowable to me, um, not with the expertise of these gentlemen. But my anxiety level is focused on who can beat Trump. 
And I think that is a question that most Democrats, and if you're making a white-black distinction here, um, the people in my neighborhood, uh, which is a Democratic uh, community from my house district, our discussion is who can win, who can win. Well, what's fascinating about that is that while Biden is tanking in one state poll after another, in the fantasy matchups of uh, all the Democrats against Trump, nationally at least, Biden is the only one who consistently is picked over President Trump. That would give heartburn to Democrats. He's going with a message that is not hard left. Call it what you – he's not picked off particular constituencies with throwaway programs. And you know you can say that that's a smart move in one respect if you're going to win the nomination, but it's almost like watching the Bob Dole, John McCain campaign all over again, Ooh, <laughs> where ouch. where you get basically is themeless kind of generally left, yeah. and, like they were generally right, and you you end up with an electorate that is not terribly excited about. I mean, your base is not excited about your candidate. Um, but I'll tell you, there is one observation about South Carolina I do want to bring up, and this is huge. Bloomberg is not on the ballot there. He's not even in the polls. But Tom Steyer is. Tom Steyer yeah, is. Right. A guy that nobody even knows in Georgia unless you live in Augusta or Savannah because that's where you see his TV ads. But you do not see them in metro Atlanta. He's right. not here to play. So you will have this guy, if you're a Georgian, completely. He, right now, the poll numbers are Biden. This morning one is out. Biden 23, Sanders 23, Tom Steyer 20. Yeah. You we, could have him win that and, and people in Georgia go, I thought I misspelled Bloomberg. Yeah, and let's <laughs> remind people that that the uh, South Carolina primary is a week from Saturday on the 29th, I guess. He could that win is, that. Yeah. Very, very confusing dynamic. And what <laughs> yes. happens in the next week is, is going to be more of my anxiety, probably more anxiety for me, but also, is there any way to know who is the beat who's the best yeah. able to beat Trump. Is there a none of the above on the on the survey? <laughs> yeah. Kerwin, uh, K- uh, yeah. we don't have a whole lot of time left, but let me uh, throw this one out at you first and we'll do a quick go round. Uh, Michael Bloomberg on the debate stage for the first time tonight. There's a yeah. lot of commotion about that. Uh, what do you make of it? Is it really a big deal uh, for Bloomberg? Does he have? Is this a big proving uh, a night for him to prove himself, or his his ad money will cover up any flaws? Well, I, I think it's a big night. It's a big deal. I mean, I, it, he hasn't been pressed yet yeah. uh, in the limelight, and he's going to be starting tonight. He's going to ha- answer a lot of questions, also from the media over the next few days. So, I get the feeling the Bloomberg candidacy could be one of these things that's popped with a pin. But uh, but we'll see. That could happen over the next you, few weeks. Are you guys seeing an onslaught of his quotes from the past? Oh, yeah. that oh are sure. Be I somewhat mean, the, uh, sure. The opposition research. I, never had I the answer you, for those. Before, I will. Right? I do not believe that is just accidental. Of course, and, oh, I <laughs> and the Biden campaign is so badly run. I don't think it's their opposition. I, I think this is independent people connected with Trump. Spread scale. <laughs> yeah, I think right. this is a, a Republican. Trump. What do you think about Bloomberg operation? tonight? With uh, like, we'll hear about that Oppo research yeah. all yeah. night tonight. Yeah, we will. I mean, it, Bloomberg's had his own sort of jet stream. Terrible stuff. And he's not as own... bad as Trump. Why is it going to affect Bloomberg and not Trump? Nobody knows Bloomberg. Yet. It's being de- he's defined as this. Trump was we'll defined hear, differently when he was running. I think we'll hear Biden talk about it. I think we'll hear Bernie talk about it. I think we'll hear Buttigieg and Warren talk about that tonight, and it will be the focus. He will be the target and, of all their And attacks. the beneficiary of all of that, if that's what happens, will be none other than Bernie Sanders. I thought <laughs> you were going to say Donald Trump. No, <laughs> well, Donald Trump too. Yeah. But if Bernie Sanders is left untouched tonight because everybody wants to go after uh, Bloomberg and stop his ascent, you know, I, it I, will be interesting to see. 
All right. You got 10 seconds to say what's interesting, interesting. to see if Bloomberg is is nominated. What happens with the Sanders people? Uh, they he is 100 percent. their polar opposite. Roundtree got the last word. He got us a poll, so we give it to him. Mary Margaret Oliver, Mark Roundtree, Kerwin Swint, Greg Bluestein. Thanks for a really terrific conversation on Political Rewind today. Uh, we'll see you again for another Political Rewind tomorrow. Take care. <laughs>